Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome home. It's the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 333. So great to have you here with us. Some haunted housekeeping off the top. Don't forget, you can watch the Boot Crew on Bloody Disgusting's 24-7 streaming channel, available on Roku, Vizio Smartcast, Pluto, and more. Online, you can hit up youtube.com slash BD Horror Trailers and Clips. At time of release, if you find yourself in the SoCal area August 5th, over at the Federal Bar in North Hollywood, we're going to be at Hell is a Teenager. This is a Jennifer's Body-themed club night put on by our good friends at the Mystic Museum. Mystic is part of the epicenter of the horror community out here, a gallery and store that we love so much in Burbank. So Hell is a Teenager, it's a one-night-only, 21-and-over event. goes down from 9.30 to 1.30 a.m. with live music, DJs, Jennifer's Body-themed drinks, photo ops, the movie we'll be playing, exclusive merch available with a portion of the proceeds going to mental health charities and organizations in support of women's rights. Jennifer's Body is one of our favorite movies of all time. This is going to be such a cool way to celebrate it. Cosplay is welcome. I can't wait to see your Jennifer Needy Colin outfits, maybe Nickeloy Wolf. Tickets over at themysticmuseum.com. It's sponsored by The Boo Crew and Liquid Death. On to the program. This time around, you're joined by John Campopiano and Chris Griffiths, who created an incredible new documentary, Pennywise, The Story of It, as well as Ben Heller, one of the stars of the original 1990 miniseries based on the Stephen King novel. It is a fantastic deep dive into one of the scariest TV events of all time, with stunning behind-the-scenes footage, interviews with Seth Green, Tim Curry, Emily Perkins, Tommy Lee Wallace, and so many more. We're going to talk about everything from its impact and legacy stories from the set, and just the overall process of what goes into making something like this and the detective work and discoveries along the way. You can watch Pennywise, the story of it, on the Screambox streaming platform that is a horror experience curated by Bloody Disgusting starting July 26th. Episode 333 with Pennywise, the story of it is now slaying. It's amazing to me all these years later how people are still coming up and talking about that it has this lasting effect and impact. Its enduring power may come from the chords it strikes among all of us. We're all human beings and we were all children once. Pop culture has taken ownership of this miniseries. It scared the hell out of millions of people. Advertisers were very nervous. This was a children in jeopardy story. We were breaking new grounds because I don't remember before any kind of material like this that I saw on television. The only source of disappointment for me was the fact that we couldn't go as raw and as bold as they did in the in the book. One of the comments is, is typically, Tim Curry is the reason why I'm terrified of clowns. Steve's particular spin was to take something that's much loved and familiar and ratcheted it up as far as it could possibly go. Wow. Tim could act to a manhole cover because he has that kind of charisma and presence. 
He brought more to the character than was written on the page. I saw it as a fantasy character. It was an illusion that it's presenting to these children. I wanted it to almost be like a living cartoon. And he said, if you want me to wear this scary makeup, then I think you have the wrong actor. And I thought, what? I'll kill you all. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. So joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are three evocative storytellers. First off, an archivist whose work includes Harvard Film and WGBH's legendary, over a hundred-time Emmy-winning investigative show, Frontline. As a documentary filmmaker and producer, he continues to bring us several deep dives into the best of the genre, among them 2017's award-winning Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery. He is John Campopiano, also here with us, a director, producer, and writer who is part of the team behind the extraordinary Levi. The story of Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2 featuring an unprecedented nine hours of interviews and footage. In 2016, he was our guide into one of the greatest vampire movies ever made with the Rondo-nominated You're So Cool Brewster, the story of Fright Night, and founded Dead Mouse Productions, who specialize in feature-length retrospectives into unforgettable cult classics. We welcome Chris Griffiths, finally, a phenomenal actor whose work includes the iconic performance of Young Stanley and the Emmy-winning Stephen King's It. It was a role that has been baked into our childhood featuring some particularly nasty treatments at the hands of Henry Bowers' gang and Pennywise himself being slammed against that wall by the demented evil clown. A huge part of why it remains as the most terrifying made-for-TV movie ever created as well as ground zero for what became legions of horror fans. He is Ben Heller. The film is Pennywise, the story of It. It's an exceptional look at the 1990 miniseries. It had its world premiere at Sitkiss, followed by Fright Fest and Panic Fest, where it has earned countless accolades. It debuts on Cinedime streaming channel Screambox, which is a horror experience curated by Bloody Disgusting. As of July 26th, we are honored to welcome once again its creators John Campopiano, Chris Griffiths, and one of the stars of the original series, Ben Heller. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> Thanks for having us, guys. Guys, thank you all so much. That was an absolutely awesome intro oh, I'm not gonna lie to you said all John when you said all yeah. John's things like oh 100 Emmys I'm like well you guys again thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us and, and congrats on getting this incredible documentary in front of viewers everywhere so we want to start by kind of going back to the year that this miniseries was released the the berlin wall had just come down the cold war was ending the top movies were <laughs> home alone and pretty woman and new kids on the block were massive wilson <laughs> phillips signed Feld and the Simpsons had like just debuted and out of nowhere, like a fucking wrecking ball to be the antithesis of all of that. This absolutely sinister horror story from the mind of Stephen King is brought to life. And not only that, but invited right into our homes at that time. We would kind of just love to go around the, the virtual room here and, and find out about your first experience with it. I guess beginning with John. So, um, I mean, when it first broadcast, I was too young to see it. I was, um, five turning six. Oh, so wow. the miniseries, the miniseries broadcast November 18th and then night two was November 20th. My birthday is happened to be November 19th, right in the middle, which I've always gotten a kick out of. Um, so the, the first time I experienced it was, um, 
I was an only child growing up and my best friend across the street had older brothers that would love to rent scary stuff and torment us and put them on. And so that was my first experience. I remember seeing the spine of the VHS cover in the video store with Tim's sort of deadpan look as Pennywise and kind of really avoiding that aisle altogether. And then it was that older brother of a best friend who put it on and, and scared the shit out of me. I, I, didn't, I barely made it past the Georgie scene the first time I saw it. Mm. And I, I played that whole like, oh, I hear my mom calling me. I, I, I've got a split, <laughs> which was total BS. I just I was I, I was chicken and, and was afraid of showing it. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, I sort of loved that thrill of being scared and would revisit it and eventually saw it, you know, in its entirety. But that was my first experience. And then how about you, Chris? Uh, thing I, my first point of contact with it will always be at lunchtime in primary school. I always remember it being just massively talked about. I mean, it's what, 1990, I'm 88. So this is a good few years afterwards, and it must have broadcast in the UK around that same period as uh, 1990. So I was a latecomer uh, to the show. I think I didn't see it until I was about like 10 or 11. If I have to be completely honest, my, my nerves were hardened quite an early age when I was shown a banned copy of um, Texas Chainsaw, which I feel I've said that oh, wow. so many times recently. <laughs> I bet. Um, and, and that was just kind of like, right, there's my nerves. They're rock solid. But um, I think the thing for me is it's overall, it's just the whole Stephen King experience, the TV movie experience. There's something really um, warm and homely about it. It's still scary. It's got its moments. Um, so I was quite late coming to it. So it was probably VHS. And I will say the Georgie sequence at the start is effective. And I think the ones that got me the most was, funny enough, with Ben, it's the mummy sequence. And with uh, Mrs. Kirsch, those two parts can still just about um, sort of uh, can't think of any decent analogy, but scare the shit out of me. Yeah. <laughs> I was right in the pocket when I saw it. I was, yeah, I was like 13, 14. So I was like right in the pocket of those kids and to be experiencing that journey through their eyes was, it was one of the first horror experiences I've ever had. And it, it, it was like, unlike anything I'd ever seen, the effects at the time were mind blowing, especially for anything on TV. It didn't see that much blood or anything like that ever. And to have this eventized thing that everybody was kind of talking about, it really, it really was incredible. And no one knows more about that experience than Ben himself, who actually got to be a part of this event in a way that only few did. So Ben, tell us about your journey in it and how it all started for you. Yeah, no, thank you for the question um, and for having me here. You guys are amazing. I just echo what Chris, Chris said in that um, the intros were amazing. I honestly, I'm really impressed with um, with the one you did for, well, for me, but also, well, just because I didn't know there was that much to say about me. So thank oh, you. Oh, come on, um, man. <laughs> but, you know, my first experience with it was just getting, you know, a call from my agent um, at the time I was living in Vancouver, B.C., uh, and saying, hey, there's an audition. It's for Stephen King's It. Um, and um, you should, you know, you've, you've got a call at this time. So get ready. Um, and uh, so, yeah, from there, I just um, I got a copy of the script and um, read through that. Uh, I, I then started to read the book and then was told, no, don't do that. Um, it, it might, you know, uh, sort of, you know, uh, you don't want to be influenced sure. by the yeah. book stick to the script is what I was told. So I did that at the time. And, um, you know, it was about three auditions um, uh, before I was notified uh, that I got the part. And that took place about maybe over a couple months period. Um, It was, I think, in sometime in May that I got um, notified about it. So, um, you know, the last uh, few weeks of the school year was a little tough to concentrate. Uh, I was 17. So, you know, going into uh, uh, my last year of high school and um, and a funny story, I couldn't 
uh, actually finish my um, my drama final. So I, I failed drama that year. <laughs> oh, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other teachers were cool. They let me come back and write my tests. And but no drama teacher was like sorry you're not here you're oh fame. my god it did not hurt my feelings <laughs> was there was there any awareness of being part of something very different and very special at the time oh man i i think that the awareness of that didn't come till a little bit later to be honest with you um i was so new to the business for one thing um i knew that there were some really you know big important actors that i was going to be working with i had a ton of respect for um but but i don't think i really understood kind of um you know how how uh, groundbreaking let's say um the document or sorry the, the miniseries was yeah um, with with you know what they were able to do and be on um you know national television uh so it was a few years later when when kind of you know the internet became more of a thing and i started to understand how how much of a fan base there there is out there there was and and it just blew me away i was i was amazed yeah in this documentary it was a uh, it was a lot of fun to see some of the cast talk about all the friendships and, and uh, camaraderie on set, especially amongst the young losers club. Uh, what is your fondest memory of being on set with your fellow cast members? Oh man, that's a great question. I mean, there really are so many good memories. I mean, it, and it's funny because, you know, every time something like this comes up, you know, I get to think about those memories again and they're there. And it's something I, you know, never want to, you know, um, not think about because, um, but, but gosh, you know, if I had to, I had to kind of narrow it down on the spot here. Um, <laughs> I'd say there was a, there was, a, there was a, a scene where if you remember the rock throwing scene at the quarry where, um, you know, uh, uh, um, Mike joins the losers club, right? Well, um, in between takes, um, that was just a big kind of, you know, um, rock quarry, sand quarry type of thing. And um, we kind of just, we saw some really fun looking piles of sand to jump off of. And, um, and it was, you know, what we didn't, weren't really thinking about, you know, what that might do to our wardrobe, for example, right. um, or perhaps our, our makeup. Yeah, um, mess up continuity fun. completely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we got some pretty good pictures of it that I, I don't, I think some of them might've made their way into the dock, but, uh, but that was a lot of fun. We just, and that was kind of an example of a lot of the things that, that we would do. It would just be something spontaneous, whatever it is to try to entertain ourselves, um, mostly within reason in between takes yeah and the adult version of stanley played by richard Maser from the thing and risky business and monumental film and tv projects tell us about the time if any that you got to spend just one-on-one -on -one with him and any work you did on bringing kind of a shared vision of stanley to life yeah um i was lucky to be able to meet him um a little bit before filming started and he was in vancouver um and uh, uh i got a, a call kind of at random uh, and, uh, was, um, I, I wasn't at home at the time. So my father had come to pick me up and, and take me to meet, uh, Richard Mazur, which was at his hotel at the restaurant, uh, at his hotel in Vancouver. And, um, I mean, what I was told was that we were supposed to just get together and, um, and, and talk. And, um, and I didn't know actually until I met him that the objective was to kind of try to like figure out how we were going to, you know, tie the character together, yeah. like mannerisms and, and stuff. And so, um, you know, we were just talking and, um, um, and he was asking, you know, what, what we should do. And, and then, um, you know, I, I don't know why, but this, this just gesture towards my ear, it just happened <laughs> and he liked it. 
Um, and, uh, and so that was that. It, and it just was like, there wasn't even any debate about it, actually. You know, it just, uh, the, the conversation was probably not more than an hour. And at that moment when, when, you know, it was determined that that was going to be our, our thing, yeah. um, it probably happened in, in five minutes, that conversation. So to me, you know, again, just a newcomer to the business, never been in a situation like that before, freshly turned 17, just kind of, you know, flying by the seat of my pants, going, going by instinct and, you know, making it. So, Yeah. <laughs> We love props over here. And so I have to ask, did you get to keep anything from the set? Man, I wish I didn't get to. Um, uh, I It crossed my mind to just be like, oh, it's kind of harmless just to take this shirt or, you know, these suspenders. But I didn't. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, wish I wish I would have. Though. It probably would have been fine. Do we know if. Tim has the costume. Oh, like if um, anyone, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Ben or Chris and John, can you speak on that? Is there any yeah, relics yeah. from the production oh, that I still exist? I think someone <laughs> um, in this room can talk about the Pennywise suits. <laughs> so I, I have two of them. No way! Wow. Um, oh wow! I'll tell a quick story. Um, Chris was there, obviously. Um, we we interviewed Monique, who was the uh, costume designer. Um, amazing costume designer, Emmy winning costume designer, actually. And she's based in Vancouver and she brought, she found one of the, the Pennywise suits. She worked with Bart and Tommy to, to create them. And then she made them. Um, she's a seamstress. And anyway, so she brought, she found one in her costume archives and brought it to the interview when we were in Vancouver filming everybody. And um, she knew that I, I'm a big fan of the miniseries, and she was getting ready to retire at that point, and, and she nicely gifted it to me. So that's, that's been in my, in my collection for a while. And then fast forward during COVID, she was cleaning out her storage, found a second one and emailed me and said, do, do you want, do you want this one? I mean, at that point, why stop? Oh my gosh. And so she, yeah, yeah. So that's incredible. Yeah. And, and after that experience, I was lucky enough to do some conventions with Ben and the other losers um, in the UK and, and different parts of the States and bring them to sh put them on display for people to see. I didn't want to sort of just keep them locked away in my closet. I wanted to share them with fans and stuff, knowing that people would get a kick out of seeing them. So uh, that's been really fun. We've got another one coming up in, in October up in Maine. So they'll be on display there. That's so, wow. Yeah. She like gifted you thousands and thousands of dollars. <laughs> so I, I don't know, Chris, do you, do you remember Chris? She has like a very strong French Canadian accent. And I remember when she was leaving the interview, she had given it to me and she, she gave me a hug and she sort of whispered in my ear in this thick French Canadian accent. If I see these on eBay, I will kill you. And I believe her. Yeah, exactly. I believe her, and I still believe her. So, um. well, let's. So, so you've talked. Obviously, you've talked to people in wardrobe, special effects, all these people associated with the film. So, I guess just take us uh, on the journey down the path of creating this deep dive into it, right from I guess the conception and teaming up on this. We'll start there. Well, what's quite funny, I suppose, at the start, I'm, I'm crap at answering messages. I've got an <laughs> inbox full of garden as well. Emails, Facebook <laughs> Messenger, one of which around, before the documentary came around, uh, was, I believe, John saying, hey, how you doing? Da -da -da -da. I'm like, yeah, I'll have a look at that in a bit. And I didn't put two and two together who he was at that point. Um, and simultaneously to that, uh, myself and Gary uh, Smart from Dead Mouse uh, doing the Fright Night documentary, we met Bart Mixon, who did the effects for Fright Night 2. 
Um, obviously, Bart, as we know, is uh, responsible for Pennywise's iconic makeup in this. And he had mentioned to us during the course of that documentary, because he's a bit of an archivist himself, he had retained like behind the scenes footage, photos, which is obviously a massive draw for these documentaries. That's one of the most fun parts is collecting all this stuff. So anyway, I had ignored John, Bart had told us about this. And so John decided to do the right thing and go to Gary. He's a lot more savvy <laughs> with messages uh, and kind of initiates, you know, let, let's get together. John's obviously spoken to Bart. We've spoken to Bart. Hey, guess what? We all do documentaries and let's go from there. And then that's where our journey began. And John? You can back yeah. me up on that one. And I mean, yeah, no, Chris nailed it. Exactly. I mean, Bart, Bart was really sort of the, uh, the catalyst for, um, for this doc happening. And then once that, once we sort of teamed up and, and we decided to work on it together, um, then our focus was on, you know, getting Tim, which took a while. I think it was almost a year of, of sort of back and forth and waiting for that sort of confirmation that he would do it up to that point. He'd really never spoken publicly about the role. So we knew that he would be an important person to get on board. And then once that happened, it really took off from there. Um, and we were in LA for a couple of weeks and then up to Vancouver. And then I did some pickup interviews in the States after the guys went back to, to Europe. Um, and then, yeah, that, that's pretty much how it went, went down. And then we just spent a lot of time finding additional photos and behind the scenes materials to use. Um, I think we probably amassed like 500, 600 photos from the making wow. of the miniseries, um, Bart's footage. So it's rich in archive, which I think is great because you don't, you want to see the talking heads, but at a certain point you really want to see all the other good stuff, you know, and, and Bart saved us on that, you know, time and time again. And he's so generous. I mean, you know, Bart's a fan himself. And so he gets it and um, was excited. You know, sometimes you have to pry those things out of people's hands. They're protective of it or whatever, but Bart couldn't have been happier to give us this stuff. You know, it's pretty amazing. Um, so we, we owe a lot a, to him. He is a massive fanboy of it, isn't he? of uh, the Pennywise yeah. thing, which there, there and is. I, and I think all of his projects. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. You know, uh, he's helped us with like Robocop and everything like that. But I will say, actually, I suppose it's a bit advanced saying this. Usually it's what you find out afterwards, but a little bit of trivia about a documentary. I'll just say when you watch it, just keep an eye on what Bart's wearing uh, during the course of his interviews. <laughs> oh, two hours. Something we came up with on set. <laughs> <laughs> just, just watch it. I won't say anything beyond that, but showing his kind of fandom and allegiance, you know, and rightly so. Like, hey, Bart's gone, you know, he's he's worked on Matt Elm Streets. He worked on Chainsaw Massacre 2, uh, Robocop. So we're all fanboys of him. And obviously now, the bugger's working on every Tom, Dick and Harry incarnation of Marvel now. Um, so yeah, he's, you can tell his pride and joy is Pennywise and that should show in the documentary should people notice it. So I'll give people the steerage, but I won't say exactly what it is, but just keep, keep your eye out every time he pops up in the documentary. No, I got to rewatch it. Yeah. <laughs> the Boo Crew will be right back. Fear will freeze you when you face it. The Mummy. Born from the darkest tomb of the pharaohs, it rises from the quiet dust of centuries to wreak a strange vengeance against mankind. The mummy. It tears steel bars like paper. It snaps men's spines like matchsticks. It walks through bullets like a ghost. The mummy. It sees without eyes, it lives without breath, yet its desires are strangely, madly human. The motion picture screen's most shocking experience in suspense. In chilling Technicolor. The Mummy. 
Yeah, and this uh, this is for John and uh, Chris. In this, in the making of this documentary, it's quite the cast and behind the scenes footage to track down with the seven young cast and seven adults, and then the passing of some of the stars of the miniseries, like John Ritter, or some of the challenges in making this documentary. Is there anything you wish she could have included but couldn't? Hmm. Probably the. I mean, t- it's hard to say because we we both we both had with our prior works on all of them there's always just that one or those one or two people you don't get yeah for us primarily it was clive barker for leviathan we were close but then at the 11th hour it's like oh you don't have him um and you feel a bit uh, lost there but i think we started off on quite a good foot to be honest i mean it was the exception of about what one or two people john i think who mm-hmm. we would have loved to have had but just sort of sort of yeah. showcase no interest really in being a part of it um i think it was a net tool that you'd approached isn't it john um yeah and then and Harry Anderson. Yeah. Harry Anderson was ill at the time. He he passed away like during the edit, like once we had shot all the interviews. Um and we had a couple of nice exchanges over email. And I think probably, you know, he didn't say so, but I think he probably knew he was maybe not well. And, yeah. Um, so he he declined. But I think one thing that Chris and I talked a lot about, obviously, was the structure. I mean, we had so much material. The miniseries is so big. There's the book. What is the structure of the documentary going to be? Um, and then, you know, all of the archive that we had amassed, like, how are we going to incorporate that? We were lucky because with seven kids as the main characters, a lot of those kids, parents are on set. And so they're taking photos. So it it was actually a pretty easy job to find that stuff. And in a similar way for me, when I did the pet cemetery documentary at the time, there really was no making of content out in the world at all. And so it wasn't like we were trying to rehash the same content, you know, where other films have a lot of making ofs out there, a lot of behind the scenes photos of the miniseries. There was nothing before the documentary. So everything was basically gold that we were finding. Yeah, it must have felt Um, like being Indiana Jones kind of unearthing all this stuff like, oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it did feel that way. How many hours of footage? Oh, sorry. Someone else was going to No, 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 go ahead, please. What I was going to say was crap. So, yeah. Like usual. Um, uh, how many hours of footage? Yeah. Did you guys capture? A lot. I think we're kind of, if you average about 45, you know, an average uh, figure of 45 minutes per interview, we're upwards of about 30 hours. Wow. And that's where it really is. I must admit, I, I've really grown fond of editing. So I had a hand in the editing on this, although we had Nick who had sort of done the baseline edit and echoing what John had said. That was probably one of the biggest hurdles we had to tackle uh, with the structure because there's so many areas to cover. Yeah. Um, yeah. With it, you've got, you know, Origins, you've got Stephen King, you've got the effects of cholerophobia and everything. So we had these kind of big ambitions that, yeah, it's going to be huge and we're going to cover this, 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 this. And, and we were kind of advised, really, by um, our producers to, it needs to be lean, it needs to be to the point, and it's really hard to let go of things. Sure. You know, we might have had a three-hour cut at one point, you know, on the initial baseline, no bells and whistles. And at first, you're a bit reticent to do it, but admittedly, it's it, the joy of editing, I always find it. It's a bit like I'm a chess or it's like a puzzle, and you're just rearranging the pieces. And then when it all starts to flow, it's like, oh, um, so with that, there were some sacrifices. There's a n- number of people, uh, like local cast and crew, who just didn't make the final edit because they would have not had enough time to basically breathe in yeah. the documentary. Yeah. It might have been like, mm-hmm. uh, and then that was it. So 
we kind of sought we sought to make sure that along with this full two hours five minutes uh, edit we've assembled about an hour's worth of bonus content which is essentially like an extension of the documentary um mm-hmm. i think one area we covered was uh, all the casting crew's childhood fears so oh. now we've got an independent bonus feature and all fully realized that was my biggest mandate i've seen some documentaries where everything's a bit like oh yeah no fuck it we'll keep the green screen in the background you know no music no this no that and so hopefully these extra about an hour's worth will kind of culminate in a, oh it's all the extra bits i think it just would have impacted the actual flow of the documentary like when are we going to get to the film because you're talking about all this other stuff around right um and i think that was like i said the biggest chance we must have gone through God knows how many drafts, John, somewhere in the region of 20 different iterations. 20, 23. Documentary oh, before. my gosh. Wow. There we go. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, so it is, it's true. There's a, there's a saying. I don't know if there's a saying in the UK, but it's sort of like filmmaking like that is like killing your babies all the time. Because right. it's like you constantly have to refine. And, and at a certain point, you're just in it too much. Like Chris and I were just too deep into the edit. that The objectivity was kind of gone and we needed, you know, fresh eyes. And that's our producers, Hank and others uh, helped us with that. Um but yeah, I think the bonus features are great. Um, one of the things that I was really adamant about doing is sort of trying to look at Vancouver as a place because as a filmmaker, I'm really interested in like where movies are made. Mm-hmm. So, so we, we looked at Vancouver and we kept some of that in the film, um, which I'm glad that we were able to preserve some of that. But, oh yeah, no, it was really interesting. I, I, I spent a lot of time myself in Vancouver growing up there and uh, it was cool to see that element kind of celebrated about that city cool. and diving into the production kind of history of that city as well. And uh, speaking on that in Vancouver, before we get, I want to ask about the presentation of the documentary itself, but first, Ben, what did the process look like on your end, beginning with, I guess, your thoughts on what they were doing and how it was pitched to you? Yeah, I mean, um, I'd gotten a message from Brandon Crane that that John was out, um, you know, kind of trying to reach people. And um, so he gave me kind of a little bit of, of information about it. And um, and he said, you know, and he sounds legit. I was like, OK, good. That's good. John sounds legit. Turns out he's super duper legit. <laughs> right. Um, but um, but yeah, we actually I, we arranged for, uh, to get on a call and 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 it was great. It was like talking to, you know somebody I previously knew because he knew so much about the movie and he was a big fan and we both are very nostalgic in some way. So we connected on, on some things. Yeah. We had a great conversation for more than an hour. I think John, I, I, if if maybe you recall, Um, but, uh, but from there I was like, I was super um, excited about it. And I just started digging out all the photos, all the, you know, uh, like um, crew cards and, and, and call sheets and anything that I had my old script and, and stuff like that, uh, just to submit and be like, you know, use whatever of this you can. Um, it just, it's, and, and I'd, I'd known, or at least by that point I had seen um, uh, or been aware of some of his other work. And, and um, so it, it was, it was easy just to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm into this. Let's do it. <laughs> and Leo, you had a question for Ben. Yeah, Ben, there are stories in this documentary about you young kids getting into trouble on set and goofing off. What's the craziest thing you guys did on set? You know, <laughs> I was reminded of this um, last night, and um, it's, it's definitely a fuzzy memory, but I, I, I can vouch for its authenticity. And um, there, there, I think what the, the craziest thing that we did was also probably um, the not a very respectful thing to do to another actor the officer nell if you guys recall um the scene where the officer comes across this bridge and um 
uh, screams at the kids down in, in the barrens to like, you know, not, you know, make this dam and all this stuff saying you guys got to stick together because, you know, kids are getting killed and all this stuff. Well, when, when he was doing his, when he was, you know, being filmed, we were on the other side of the camera and we were just making jokes and being silly and probably saying some inappropriate things. Um, <laughs> and, and we got called out for it and he got really, really upset about it. Um, and I think we just didn't understand at the time. We were like, no, we're just having fun. And that was it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that, that was, that was probably, probably one of the, one of the crazier things, but um, pr- probably some other more crazy stuff happened offset. Right. I can only, I can only yeah. imagine in the streets yeah, of Vancouver, yeah. yeah, hanging out. Um, I, I wanted to uh, go back to the the presentation of of the the work itself. There's really cool things you've done, kind of um, going into the different segments with the typewriter and all that stuff, and then bringing photos to life, which is something that you do slow mowing some of the footage and adding kind of I, I, almost like a three dimensional effect to some of the still photos, if you will. What kind of process, thought process went into the overall presentation of the documentary? Hmm. Well, I'll let Chris deal with the effects because that's his wizardry. But in terms of the typewriter stuff, I think the idea, the genesis was you know, the opening of the miniseries has got a photo album. And so mm-hmm. we were kind of thinking about photo albums and King at typewriters. And so Chris and I were just trying to find a way to thread the chapters as we started to see them together in a way that felt organic and made sense to the source material. So that's kind of the genesis of the typewriter, but I'm the lowly archivist. I'll let Chris handle all the fun, sexy, special effects <laughs> questions. Um, I'd say actually going on the overall aesthetic of the doc, which again, I, I, I definitely find interest in, in doing and Gary and myself had obviously debated about this or not debated, but chatted about it. Um, I think one of the important things when we're making documentaries is to kind of recreate the experience of the film, the source material. Um, and I think what we tried pinning down with Pennywise is tonally where we go with this documentary. And I think we kind of landed on, it's going to be like a halfway point between Hellraiser, which is kind of Gothic and a bit more, slow in tempo. And then you've got Fright Night, which is all out 80s cheesy kitsch. So to us, at least in a weird way, it felt like Pennywise was somewhere half between a bit more advanced Mm -hmm. and, but not quite as hectic as let's say your so-called Brewster was. Um, As for then the effects, to be honest, I've kind of picked that up and I think during the course of doing Pennywise, to be honest, and it's really addictive. The the parallax photos thing is just like, yeah, it looks so cool. To be fair, I think we got a happy marriage because like John, John was at times going like, no, less is more, less is more. But I'm like, oh, no, 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 we can do this, we can do that. And if I had to throw my hands up completely, uh, we did a kind of a six minute preview, you know, trailer some time ago, you know, around the time we'd finished production. And I look at that in comparison to the trailer we've done now. And I'm like, oh my fucking God, it's amateur hour. I cringe looking at the initial kind of, stuff we were doing and i think it's the joy of just advancing from that and it's really addictive like oh no we can do this better oh i found this new trick oh let's do this and that so i think it kind of justifies because it obviously did take us a good while to get this documentary together but if i had to kind of publicly um justify that i think look had we released this you know a lot sooner and quicker uh it would have been crap (laughs) just to be completely honest so i'm really glad that we had that time to just kind of advance things and it was really funny. It was, you know, we were discussing amongst ourselves. I'd go a bit renegade with, oh, we can do this and that. And, ooh, da, da. John would be like, right, we need to kind of ease it back and move it that way. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a, a nice big collaboration, which it all fell together. But I think, the, like I said, the important thing for us is matching 
the topic tonally. Right. You can't have 80s synthwave, bing, bang, bong with something like this, like you could an 80s film, because it's just not that. And actually, I want to the one massive, massive piece of the puzzle I have to give kudos to is um, Sean Schaefer Hennessy, who did the soundtrack. And he's come from the likes of uh, Never Sleep Again. I think he might have done Crystal Lake Memories as well. And he's worked with us before. And oh, his music, when it came together, yeah. we you know, would throw at him like, okay, we want it tonally to match. Let's not rip off themes or anything like that, but let's use the carousel effect. Let's do something slow here. And again, that's another piece of the puzzle I really, really enjoyed doing was working with him and the kind of the guidance of, mm. you know, slow here, technical there. And he just threw countless amounts of, um, I wouldn't say hours, but minutes, which in music terms is a long time, mm-hmm. of content at us. And it really, really landed. I like to think it landed. Oh, no, anyway. it certainly, it certainly did. Uh, well, and, and, to, and to Sean's credit, too, really quickly, um, there's a company, Note for Note Music, which has released his score for the documentary. Oh, wow. Which is amazing. It's on Spotify already, and, and you, can, you can stream it. And I've, I've heard that a physical release is coming in the future. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, huge nice. kudos to Sean um, and, and to Gary, of course, because Gary was leading that charge with the music as well. So, it, it, like everything, every you know, it's an all-hands-on-deck experience making documentaries like this. Um, so... One of the many things that we loved about this doc was the exploration of just how certain special effects were achieved, being able to see that. It was the first time anything of that intensity that I'm ever aware was showcased on TV at the time. What Ben, I mean, Ben, from your perspective, to be there and watch these effects and how they did it come to life, what was that? What was that like for you? Yeah, it was it was really, really interesting, actually. I mean, it was all a new experience. And, you know, um, a lot of it was uh, um, done, you know, in, in a studio um, in, in Vancouver. And um, so, you know, I was just fascinated, even even if I, I was, uh, you know, I, I could have been like back in my trailer in between takes or scenes, I would most of the time just kind of wander around on set looking at stuff and paying attention to what they're doing because it was just like you know blown away it's like you said you know it's this chance to get an understanding of the behind the scenes of what how do they do this stuff um and uh and and also <laughs> you know it, it offered some opportunities to um you know uh, uh take some creative license and take some photographs with some of the um the props like the big giant spider <laughs> right we had some fun with that one and i think you might see some some of those those pictures in the documentary uh, perhaps as well but yeah we had we had access to that we could kind of go play around with it hang on it pretend we were getting eaten by yeah. it, whatever you know so <laughs> that's amazing it was, it was really cool and it was uh, it was an education for sure and we go back to the fact that the it miniseries was an event and it's something that i fear we had lost up until i will say The last two episodes of Stranger Things reminded me of that energy of when it came out. And but, you know, Stranger Things takes place in that same era, which is interestingly enough. But what what do you guys think about that? Have we lost the ability to create that nostalgia and magic ever again? Hmm. Good question. Very good question. I think we uh, there's a massive thing, isn't there, now for 80s and 90s? I feel so justified. I was listening to Tangerine Dream in high school. Right, exactly. I was listening to Travel War, all this shit, you know, whatever, hip hop and everything. And I was there like, oh, yeah, I've got Tangerine Dream Stratosphere and I've got the Thief soundtrack. Right. And you felt like a bit of a loser, which, yeah. again, that's the great thing about it. It's relatable. Um, and I think what's interesting now is 
And it could easily go overkill. We have got to this point now, certainly through Stranger Things, where everything is this nostalgic trip into that late 80s, 90s period, which at the time is interesting, was kind of like harking back to the 50s, wasn't it? You Joe Dante's and everything yeah, like that. Yep. So we've kind of hit this, you know, zenith again of uh, your Goonies come Lost Boys come uh, It and everything like that. So it's hard to say because I feel like we're all fixated on that period. I don't know if they, I, I suppose, if to answer your question, I think we're, we've got that side of the spectrum where we're all looking back to what a great age that was. Um, I, I just don't know if there's anything out there at the moment, but then maybe it's because I've started growing grey hairs, so I can't right. exactly say that. Oh, yeah, you know, this, this is the time to be alive. Right. Global warming, right. government's falling, everything's crap. Like, I, I mean, right. I'm sure exactly. it's so different back then. That's, that's part of nostalgia kind of feel, too, right? Sorry, yeah, 100%. No, 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 it's fine. I'm sorry, I'm waffling here now. But yeah, I think it's great that Stranger Things is bringing it out again. You know, it's bringing it all back, isn't it? But um, how long that can last, I don't know, because we've got, what, one more season left of Stranger Things. Right. And actually, on that note, the link there, really, you've got with uh, Finn, oh, I his name, but you've got Finn, oh, who was in the it remake. Yep. And they were, they were, uh, they were harking back to well a it and b transferring it from the 50s to the late 80s so yeah i don't know it's a very open yeah it really is it really <laughs> john do you have anything to add yeah. on that oh, i think chris nailed it i mean i think i think we live in a, in a loop i think it's all a loop yeah. i don't know i mean you know king king was nostalgic for his his childhood and then we got now we're kind of looking back at ours and, and i i don't know i think it's very cyclical um and I think for me, that's one of the things that's made King sort of resonate with me. And we've talked a lot about this, Chris and I, and a lot of others that, you know, King gets the credit for being the horror writer, but I think what he really does well too is capture childhood. And I think he, mm. um, the experience of being a kid and, and he looks back at his childhood in the fifties quite a bit and all of his, a lot of his work. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think, I think we're all in a loop, so I'll, I'll leave it there. What does that mean? I don't know. That's what that mean. Let's wait for that next generation where it's like, oh, remember back in the day when we're all just stuck on our phones? Right. That's, what <laughs> right. Like right. That's just being, being a miserable old bastard, isn't it? Yeah, so. Ben, you got anything to say on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I like your call out about um, Stranger Things. I love Stranger Things. We're big fans in our household and, and, and the actors are just ultra good. Yeah. Um, and, but so yeah echoing everything everybody else is saying but as we're talking about this i'm just realizing that haven't the 80s been making a comeback for like almost 25 years now right i feel like i feel like yep. it started to come yeah. back in the early 2000s and it's just been rolling so <laughs> who knows what the future holds. it feels like it feels like the world's hungry for some of that magic again once things got yeah. so easy you know and, and consuming mm-hmm. content has got so easy and it's become mm-hmm. almost disposable and i think there's a a hunger for things to be made special again, it feels like. I mean, just here in mm-hmm. Burbank, we have a retro video store that's opened, you know, on our main street. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So I guess, I mean, you know, one question you guys are probably all answering to, and this kind of went in with a little bit of Finn Wolfhard and everything. We all know that, you know, it came back this time to the theater exactly 27 years after the Losers Club vanquished Pennywise the first time on TV, this time with Andy Muschietti at the helm. What did you guys all think of that compared to the miniseries well i i can't i personally can't compare it to the miniseries just because that sort of stuck in my memory and was an experience and and the two can coexist and do coexist i mean i mm-hmm. i really enjoyed both chapter one and chapter two of, of andy and barb's uh version i've always sort of felt that it really deserves sort of like a 10-part limited series just given the amount of the source material i, I would have loved to have seen it done that way 
kind of the way that Larry Cohen was hoping to do it with Romero. Mm. But I, I really enjoyed the the new film. I mean, like the miniseries, I really believed in those kids. And for me, that's really where the, the, the hook is. That's where the magic is. By the time they're adults, I'm not as invested. I'm not as interested for some reason. Right. Um, so I, I thought they were great. I think that, you know, they can coexist with the miniseries and, and hopefully we'll see another adaptation at some point. I mean, the source material is just too rich. There's so many things you can do with it. So I'm, I'm all for it. I'll, I'll echo John's uh, words as well. I mean, I, in terms of coexisting, absolutely. And in terms of like, you know, the reiterations, I mean, remake is such a, well, it's not really remakes anymore, a taboo. Right. You know, mm-hmm. there was a time when it was that, but there's, there's some good ones. Let's face it. Um, and luckily, the it movie iterations were one of the good ones, in my opinion. Yep. Um, chapter two, not so much as one. And again, we've kind of discussed this before uh, and amongst ourselves that it, it feels like chapter two is such a hard thing to tackle, to nail, to get yeah. just right. But then you'd have to have flying turtles in outer space and cosmic god knows what. And that's just kind of that's, right. that's the crux of like that's the problem with the crux of like you know adapting a Stephen King novel. Some things are just maybe work better on the page but i mean it was interesting because uh we had sort of finished uh, the initial stage of production just before the first one came out so the hype was massive yeah. when we all sort of went to see it. it's like oh, but, you know you're almost in the cinema go oh, just fyi if anyone's interested <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Right here. The <laughs> one, there was an original one you went for then fine all right, okay, I'll go. but um yeah i know I, I think I, the one thing i'll say is i got really swooped up and oh wow yeah because they got the you know it was darker wasn't it for the cinema yeah, and modern audiences sure. so it's like okay that's a lot darker wicked However, as the time's gone on, I've kind of just felt myself drift a little bit back more towards the original miniseries. I still love the new ones, but my appreciation of that original version has grown tenfold. Certainly part one anyway. Mm. They absolutely, I think they perfectly nailed it. And as you know, the balance, I, I quite like the hopping back and forth in time, whereas with this one was just uh, straight linear, wasn't it? The new yep. one. Yep. Whereas actually it was quite nice in how Tommy Lee Wallace says in the doc, uh, it was just perfect having seven characters for a seven act yeah seven breaks or whatever it was uh commercials the original show right so, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I'll, 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 i'm happy to have both of them all three of them and then and then ben ending with you man it must have been quite the trip to see a character that you know you initially kind of brought to life on tv come to life on the big screen for sure it was i mean um i I'd, I'd known that there was you know this film a lot of people wanted to make a theatrical version for a long time and it went through i think you know different producers different studios directors etc um and uh so um you know when it finally kind of came to life um i was uh, uh really excited to go see it and um the kids were that that played you know the new the updated cast i mean they have such great chemistry and they're all just so talented um but i have to say the first time that i watched it it, i just couldn't separate myself from having the miniseries in my head and the movie you know what i mean and but by the second or third time um i really started to just get more of an appreciation for it and the different things um uh, that the machetes did uh with this film and i i I love the um you know the soundtrack the 80s soundtrack was you know that resonates with me uh as a child uh, from the 80s so um yeah I, I i just think it was great and um it, it's hard for me to like like john said you know say make a direct comparison yeah on i agree it yeah. still um but uh i still i still watch it my favorite part about um the second 
uh, installment was Brandon Crane's cameo. That that was just like, I mean, when he came on screen, um, I yeah, just lit up and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm so excited for him. Um, and he looked great and he did great, you know. So, um, so yeah, that was probably my favorite part of, of, of that one. I will say that it definitely served a new generation and turned them into Stephen King fans. Like our kid, like our 13 year old loved this, the new series. It's harder for her to get into the stuff with the eighties. I don't know why she thinks it's so cheesy. And I just, it's just that generation. Yeah, Just in general, like I show her evil dad, whatever. It's just yeah. like, Oh, it's kind of cheesy. Yeah. It, and you can't change that. Like you yeah. can't fix that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she did start reading Stephen King novels, which because of that mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. So oh, I think it had very a cool. positive. Style. Every 27 years, they got to do a new one to kind of refresh the, yeah. <laughs> keep the fans going. That's right. Well, you guys, thank you so much for, for making this documentary, for yes. being part of the original series that has turned us into horror fans. And thanks for doing what you guys doing and all these deep dives into, into the cult classics that have created us. Basically it's appreciated so much. <laughs> Yes. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. Well, we'll wrap it up there again. Thanks so much. If there's anything else we can do, let us know. And we hope to have uh, many more conversations like this in the future for your next projects. That'd be great. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, guys. Awesome, guys. Take it Thank easy. You. Bye. 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 That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 333. Special thanks to our guests, John Campopiano, Chris Griffiths, and Ben Heller. The time of release, Pennywise, the story of It, is available on the Screenbox streaming platform curated by Bloody Disgusting starting July 26th. Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, this is Trev for the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.